0: Would y'all pray with me? Father God, we come before you today uh, to celebrate, to celebrate the fact that you loved us enough uh, to send your Son, to send your Son to redeem us and to invite us into eternal life. So Father, as we celebrate, would you meet us? Would you meet us in a very real way? And Father, nothing about our circumstances is surprising to you, Uh, You know exactly where we are at this moment. You know the struggle and the pain and the fear and the uncertainty. Father, we ask that you would be near those, especially those uh, who are struggling. We ask that you would be near those that are sick. We ask you to be near those uh, whose job situation um, uh, right now uh, is challenging, maybe even uh, have lost their job. And Father, uh, we just ask that uh, even as we look to the hope of the future, that you would meet us uh, in whatever we're feeling right now. Father, we thank you uh, for those that are caring uh, for others during this time. We ask, Father, that you would continue to show us as a church how we can be your hands and feet. But, Father, each of us today need to hear from you. We need something from you, and so would you come and would you speak so clearly to what our hearts most need to hear today in this moment? And Father, I surrender myself to you. I surrender my heart and my words, the things I've thought about and prepared. I surrender all of it to you to be used however you so choose. But please, Father, by your Spirit, come and speak to us, your children. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, happy Easter, y'all. Uh, welcome uh, to my home church. Uh, I'm, I'm glad uh, to have you here um, and you know, as, I, as I've been working on this Easter sermon all week, my beginning has changed again and again and again. I haven't been able to really find the right beginning. Nothing I've tried has seemed to work out. At one point, I had a story that I thought was really compelling, uh, but the more I thought about it in light of kind of where we find ourselves, um, I didn't like it anymore. And so even this morning, I woke up and I had no idea how I was going to start this thing. And as I was sitting on my back porch, uh, before the sun came up, and I was praying, uh, what I what I kept thinking was that I miss y'all. I do, and uh, and I know I know some of you. I've never met you before. This is your first time at Summit. Um, I guess we can call this going to Summit. Um, but uh, but even if I've never met you, I miss people. Uh, but if you are someone I know, and if you're part of our Summit Church family. Um, I really miss you. And so that's that's how I'm starting my 2020 Easter sermon. I miss y'all. You know, I've been thinking a lot as we have been going through uh, all this crazy that the world we live in operates as if at the root of everything is power. I mean, think about it. Think about how our government's structured, our businesses, Wall Street, even how our churches are structured. But it feels like, right now, all of that's crumbling. All of that's falling apart. And the thing that's coming to the surface, the thing that that we're all longing for, that we see we need most, is each other, that we need relationship. That's kind of bubbled to the top. If, If I make eye contact with you, or if you make eye contact with me when we're walking, or if we're at the grocery store, even if I don't know you, we're going to have a conversation and it probably will be a long conversation. One of the very first things that God ever said uh, about us or to us, after God created the whole universe, after um, he made us in his image and he said we were very good, he said one thing is not good. He said it's not good for man to be alone. So this Easter... I wanna tell you about a relational God. And for some of you, you already know him. You've known him for a long time. Maybe you're like me and you've known him most of your life. So this will be a reminder. But maybe for some of you, you're watching this because a friend said you should, or uh, your mom sent you a link, or, or maybe a neighbor mentioned it to you and you were curious. Uh, maybe you're watching this because you're just so bored. Um, You've already watched Love is Blind and Tiger King and Ozark on Netflix, and you're like, eh, I'll, I'll go to church today. Um, but well, why ever you're watching this, um, e- even if you're not a church person, maybe because no one ever took you to church as a kid, or, or maybe you went as a kid and the church really hurt you and you said you'd never go back. Or, uh, or maybe the Christians that you know, you think they're, they're pretty hypocritical, which we can be uh, a lot of the time. Um, I want you to know that today I don't want to talk about Christians and I don't want to talk about the church, um, but I do want to talk about God. And I want to talk about how God is relational. We're starting today a, a six-week series on 1 John. 1 John is a letter written by one of the disciples of uh, Jesus. And, um, and it's, it's a great little letter. It's only six chapters, uh, but there's so much good stuff in it. And John is a fascinating disciple. John was probably 15 or 16 when he started following Jesus. So that means he couldn't be more than 19 uh, when Jesus was crucified. Um, but, But John, at the end of his life, writes, and he writes uh, quite a bit that we have in our New Testament scriptures. He writes the Gospel of John, which is just an account of the life of Christ. He writes Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And then he writes three short letters to the church, uh, 1 John being one of them. And he writes these letters to us because he wants us to know the relational God that forever changed his life. So today, that's where we're gonna start. We're gonna start looking at 1 John, this little letter. I hope that you'll stick with us for the next six weeks uh, because there's so much good in this letter, Uh, but today we're just gonna look at his introduction. So this is 1 John 1. I'm gonna start reading in the first verse. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it, And testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is God's Word, that which comes from the beginning. John just jumps right in. There's no sup or hey, how's it going? Uh, He doesn't even introduce himself. He just immediately begins to tell us like, hey, I got something really exciting I want to tell you about. In fact, I've got someone that I want to tell you about. Uh, Even as an old man, you can sense the excitement uh, in him and just writing these words down. So he starts by telling us that the person he knows, the God he knows, was from the beginning, really before the beginning. John likes to take us all the way back to the beginning in most of his writings. In his gospel, the gospel account of Jesus, he takes us all the way back to the beginning. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Nothing was made that has been made. And then he goes on to say that the Word of God is the Son of God, and the Son of God is Jesus. Got it? All right, just stick with me because I, I, I'm going I'm to take us down a little trail for a second, uh, but if you stick with me, I promise you'll understand uh, why I'm doing that and why John starts his letter, that which was from the beginning. I think there's something so uniquely personal about God that John wants us to see right from the start. It's the reason he starts both his letter and his gospel so similarly. He wants us to know something eternal about God. If you go all the way back to the beginning of the story, back to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis. Genesis one, very first words, it says, in the beginning, God. So there was God. And then in verse two, it says, the spirit of God was hovering over the deep. So the spirit of God. And then in verse three, it says, and God said, let there be light. It didn't say God created light, he made light. It says he spoke light. All of creation happens through the word of God, who, remember, is the Son of God, who is Jesus. See, John is pointing us all the way back to the beginning because he wants us to know that the God of the Bible, at his core, is relational. He's one God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not going to go into a sermon on the Trinity on Easter. Uh, In fact, I had a seminary professor who said, if you teach about the Trinity for more than a few minutes, you're bound to say something heretical. So I'm not going to do that. Uh, We are doing a a &A, Q&A on Summit's Instagram on Tuesday night. If you want to ask me some questions about the Trinity, I'd be happy to be heretical there, but I'm not going to be heretical here. But why does all this matter? Why does it matter that God is triune, that he's three in one? It matters because it shows us that relationship existed before the beginning, that relationship is eternal. Because God is triune, because He Himself is a relationship, we can know that relationships are primary, that relationships matter. That means that ultimate reality is not based on power, but it's based on relationship. It's based on love. In John's gospel, uh, he recounts a prayer that Jesus prays shortly before Jesus goes to the cross. And in this prayer, Jesus says, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I desire that the world may see my glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus is saying that before the beginning, There was love, God was love. God is is literally love. It's not just He's a loving God, God is love. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, we're loving each other, delighting in each other for all eternity. And out of that love came the power of creation. Love before power, this has profound implications. If love birthed you, you matter. John intentionally starts his letter, pointing us all the way back to the beginning so that you and I would know we matter. We matter to a relational God, but there's more. My mentor, Steve Brown, tells this story of a young couple. They were 18 when they met. Uh, They fell in love real hard, real fast. They were both away at college, first time being away from home. Uh, you know, they just, they were crazy about each other. Um, and as sometimes happens, uh, she gets pregnant, um, so they get married uh, pretty quickly. It's not the wedding that she'd always dreamed of, um, but they love each other, and they're ready to start a life together. So She has the first kid, she ends up having another kid pretty quickly afterwards, and then another kid. Um, until seven years into their marriage, uh, life's pretty crazy with three little ones running around. Um, you know, have no, the husband's having to work really hard just to make ends meet. And one day, the wife's standing at the sink, there's just a pile of dirty dishes. And uh, the littlest one, who's about one and a half at the time, is pulling on her legs, screaming, crying, unconsolable. She's looking at the pile of dirty dishes. She's looking around at the house, which is just a complete wreck, and she's been spending all day trying to keep it clean. And, uh, and she just thinks, I'm done had it. Um, So when her husband gets home from a very long day at work, she hands him the youngest child, goes out the door, vanishes. And he thinks, well, surely she's coming back. She didn't come back that night. She didn't call. He tries calling her. It goes straight to voicemail. Um, The next night, she finally calls. Um, And he's so angry. He answers the phone. He says, where are, like, what in the world? You can't do that. You can't just leave and not tell me where you are. She hangs up. She calls the next night. He tries a different approach. He says, uh, honey, the kids miss you. I miss you. You know, where are you? We we come home? She hangs up. And this goes on night after night. She calls. He tells her the kids miss her. He tells her that he loves her. He wants her to come home. She hangs up. So he goes about a week of this and then decides he's had enough. So he, he hires a private investigator, finds out that um, that she is at a motel in Ames, Iowa. He doesn't even know where Ames, Iowa is. So he Google maps it, figures out where it is. It's pretty far away. He finds the nearest airport there. It's 50 miles from the nearest airport. He books a ticket the next day, has his in-laws come over, watch the kids. He takes the flight um, and gets a rental car, drives to Ames, Iowa. And the whole way, he's preparing a speech. He's trying to plan what he's going to say when he sees her. Uh, But then in the minute he sees the motel, he just starts sobbing because it's a pretty rundown cheap motel. And, and he sees it and he thinks, how in the world is being here better than being home with me and, and the kids? Um, and so he pulls in. Um, he knows that she's in room 205. Uh, it's one of those motels with the doors on the outside. So he walks up the stairs and the whole time he just, uh, just can't stop crying because he just can't believe that his wife's been living here. He knocks on the door. She opens the door and immediately throws her arms around him. Uh, she starts crying, they begin kissing. Um, and after a f- few moments of that, he kind of pulls away and he says, "Hun, babe, please, will you come home? She says, okay. So they go home. Takes him about a week before he gets up the nerve to ask her while they're in bed one night, uh, what made her come home? He's, he said, you know, I." every night I told you that the kids missed you, that I loved you, that I missed you, please come home." And she said, well, before they were just words. Then you came. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God is more than just words. He came. Which means that you and I, this relational, personal God that John wants us to know about, understands us. We have a God who knows what it's like to be human, who knows pain and sorrow, who who knows sickness and even death itself. Hebrews 4.15 tells us we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who is tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. John is writing to the church and he's saying, we have a God who is relational. But not only that, when we ran away from Him, when we ran away from relationship with Him, He came after us by becoming one of us. And not only that, He died in our place. And not only that, He defeated death through the resurrection. And because of that, you and I can experience eternal life. So going back, To John's letter. That which was from the beginning, which we have seen, which we have heard, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. John saw the resurrected Jesus, he saw it. He touched the resurrected Jesus. We're told even that he had fish with the resurrected Jesus. John isn't just speaking about something he's heard about. He's not just putting out a philosophy or a nice idea or something to make you feel all cozy and warm. No, he's telling you something that actually happened. He was there. In fact, uh, John, in his gospel, talks about that first Easter. I just want to read to you real quick uh, what he says about that first Easter, because if you're someone who's watching this and you really are skeptical about this really being true, I, I just w- I want you to hear uh, John's telling of that Easter morning. So this is the gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 30. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. The other disciple is John. That's how John refers to himself in his gospel. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. The most unnecessary verse in all of scripture right there. <laughs> he bent over and looked in and saw strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him. Do you see what he did there? And went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus's head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first. Okay, John, we get it. You're way faster than Peter. The other disciple who reached the tomb first went inside. He saw and believed. What had John seen? He hadn't seen the resurrected Jesus yet. He saw a bunch of linens. When Jesus was buried, he was wrapped in linens very much like a mummy. Pounds and pounds of lim- linens. Um, in fact, we're told that these linens were dipped in, in myrrh and aloe, which would have made them really thick and heavy, like 75 pounds. Uh, so so there's this kind of thick wrapping that would have been around Jesus. And so when John walks into the tomb and he sees these lim- linens all folded and, and placed aside... He's examining the evidence. He's, he's using logic which leads to his belief. He's probably thinking if someone stole the body, why in the world would they go to the trouble of, of undoing all the linens and, and carrying out an oozing cadaver? Or maybe he's even thinking about the resurrection of Lazarus uh, when Jesus brought Lazarus back from the dead just about a week ago. And he remembers that when, when Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb, he said to unbind him, un, un, unwrap him, you know, and, and he, he remembers the unwrapping of Lazarus. He, he remembered that those linens had to be ripped and torn apart, but here are linens untorn, neatly folded. Faith often starts with reason, but it goes beyond that. It goes, it goes beyond that. It's not less than reasoning. Christianity is a thinking religion. And here we have John and he's thinking it through. He's examining the evidence. The intellectual atheist turned Christian apologist, Josh McDowell said what made him believe in Jesus was one thing. He said, for a very simple reason, I am not able to explain away an event in history, the resurrection of Jesus. So listen, if you're watching this and you just think this is a sweet story, this is just something to make you feel better it's it's like a, it's like a really good fairy tale um, and you've never examined the evidence i want to encourage you to do so and if you've been to any easter sermon i've ever done i do this part i do this part every it's the same every year and the reason i do this every year is because every year someone has coffee with me or sends me an email after Easter and says they never thought there was any historical or logical reason to believe in Jesus. The Christian faith is factual. If it's not true, it's not worth it. I mean, there's way more religions that'll make you feel better about yourself than Christianity. If it's not the truth, then, then there's no reason uh, to be a Christian. But the Christian faith is history. So if you're unsure or if you're questioning, here are two things that are worth you examining. No first century witness, no, not, not a single witness, disputes two facts about Easter Sunday. One, that Jesus was buried in a tomb that was known to the populace of Jerusalem. Everyone knew where he was buried. And two that body was gone on Easter Sunday. If you haven't ever thought it through, do. Because if it's true, it changes everything. Don't walk away without examining the evidence. Because if it's true, you're invited into an eternal relationship with your Creator. One of the most famous things John ever wrote John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. But John, in his letter to the church, doesn't just stop at salvation. He doesn't just stop at eternal life. John, when he's presenting the gospel, doesn't see salvation as the end. He sees it as the means to the end. Salvation which comes through Jesus is the means to fellowship. True and genuine relationship with God and with others. This seems to be the thing that John is so excited about. In fact, if we look back at our text, if we look at 1 John 1, verses 3 and 4, this is what he says We proclaim to you what we have seen and what we have heard so that so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Salvation isn't the goal. Fellowship is. Community is. Relationship is. Before the beginning, what existed? Fellowship. Relationship. Before the beginning, you had God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And as an outflow of their love for one another, you and I were created. Relationship matters. Relationship with God and each other matters. All power fades away eventually. But relationship is eternal. It has always existed, and it will always exist. One of my original drafts of this Easter sermon included uh, me starting the sermon just a cold open, you know, fade, fade in on me sitting here and I just say two words, his name. And then I tell you a story about someone. And the reason I was going to do that and the reason I wanted to do that was my pastor growing up always began his sermons that way. He always started his name or her name, and then he told us a story about someone, usually a historical figure, and then he used their life to kind of apply it to whatever the scripture text was uh, for that week. Um, And this week, as I was working on my Easter sermon, I found myself uh, thinking about him a lot, and I miss him. And uh, he passed away a few years ago. Um, After his retirement, he would often be found at the Maitland Starbucks reading a book, uh, but he was always very interruptible. I don't think he actually ever read <laughs> when he went to Starbucks. Uh, but I, I uh, would find myself at that Maitland Starbucks a lot uh, when I'd be working on my sermons. Um, I have lots of coffee shops that are way closer to my house, but I often wanted to go and work on my sermon at the Maitland Starbucks because there was a good chance I would see Pastor Green there. Um, and I knew if I had a wall, he'd help me with my sermon. I really miss being able to work on sermons at coffee shops, uh, but I really uh, this week uh, wish Pastor Green was here to help me with this one. I said at the beginning John was an old man when he wrote, and as an old man, a man who saw most of his closest and dearest friends die, many martyred for the sake of Christ, as a man who saw probably one of his best friends, Peter, crucified just like his Savior. Peter had been dead probably 20 years before John wrote anything. John sits down as an old man, and he writes, but the other disciple outran Peter. Can you just imagine the look on his face when he wrote that? I mean, this 80-year-old man, I bet he was just beaming. And I bet there were some tears, too. I bet he was really missing his friend. You and I, when we lose someone we love, we often remember them uh, through stories that make us smile or laugh. Peter was so slow. But John, as he wrote, was longing to see his friend again. And because of Easter, he has. And I will.